Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Thanks for joining us uh, for today's show. We have a great, great panel in the studio to talk about a number of uh, political news stories that are happening all around us right now. Uh, but before I introduce them and we begin our conversation about the uh, stories we want to cover today, um, I just want to take a couple of minutes to do a fact check. Um, many of you were listening to yesterday's show when one of our panelists, Julianne Thompson, who's on the show with some regularity, she now is the chair of the Georgia Women for President Trump, made an allegation that caught me by surprise and I think caught a lot of you out there in the listening audience by surprise. Uh, Julianne said a group of women who call themselves angel moms, they're the moms whose children have been killed by presumed undocumented immigrants, recently tried to have a meeting with House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Uh, the, Julianne said that uh, the Speaker would not meet with them. And uh, she went on to say that to protect Pelosi from the group that was staging a small, what seemed to be a peaceful demonstration, I've looked at the video in Pelosi's outer office, to protect Pelosi and the staff, Capitol Hill police were called in, they were brandishing plastic hand restraints, um, this was all part of the story that we were told yesterday. And Thompson said that Pelosi's behavior w in this was heartless. So when she made that claim, I said on the air yesterday, gee, I read no reporting of this anywhere, and that I was surprised by that because Pelosi is obviously being followed around continually by a pack of journalists who watch everything she does. So... After the show and early this morning, the Political Rewind team and I decided to research this a little bit and do a fact check on the claim. And this is what we've learned. This story began as a post from a Facebook user. It was quicked up, picked up, and reported right away by Alex Jones on his website, InfoWars. Uh, a number of organizations like the Anti-Defamation League have called Jones a right-wing anti-government conspiracy theorist. So take that for what it's worth. Subsequently, the story was published by Breitbart and Gateway Pundit, which are also publications well-known for putting a right-wing spin on a lot of news reporting. And then Donald Trump Jr. tweeted out a brief video that apparently was recorded by one of the women who was in Pelosi's outer office with a tweet that read, why is Pelosi ignoring and refusing to meet with these heroic angel moms? All right, so the point of all this is to say, this has been reported by Infowars, by Breitbart. Fox News did have a segment with several of the women who uh, said they were in the uh, office when uh, they wanted to meet with Pelosi. But there is no reporting by other media about this event. And, and maybe more important is the fact that none of the women has come forward to say that they actually tried to schedule a meeting with Speaker Pelosi. It is possible that they showed up in the office hoping that a meeting would take place, but there is no way of knowing where Pelosi might have been. And as anybody who's tried to visit with their congressman or congresswoman knows, when you show up in the office, you're not guaranteed you're going to get to see that person. So I wanted to make that clear because a number of you on Facebook Live yesterday said, why aren't we challenging this assertion more? And the answer is very simple. We want to check these things out thoroughly. We owe a certain amount of respect to each of our panelists that we don't immediately shoot down the things that they say on this show. And so that's why you're hearing about this from us uh, uh, today. Um, by the way, we also heard from a couple of you that we ganged up on Julianne Thompson yesterday. So I'm glad to say that nobody is really happy with the way everything <laughs> unfolded, which means we're doing our job pretty well. All right, enough said about that. Greg Bluestein is uh, with us today, the hardest working man in the political journalism world of Georgia. Hi, Greg. How's it going? 
pretty good. You were just with Ivanka Trump and uh, Governor Kemp. We're going to talk about that in just a minute, but welcome. And then you were with Stacey Abrams. It's like a flashback to last year. Yeah. Every day. <laughs> um, we are, <clears throat> excuse me, welcoming for the first time uh, to the Rewind uh, Studios, Amir Faroqi, an Atlanta City Councilman elected in 2017. You represent District 2, which covers big area. You're north of downtown. You're in the old Fourth Ward, right? What's that? Yeah, I like to call it the heart of the city. It's actually the smallest city council district, but uh, it's maybe the most high profile. Most of downtown, midtown, Old Fourth Ward, Edmund Park, Candler Park. And you're you wear a lot of different hats in your uh, uh, in your work outside of city council. How do you describe the many organizations that you do work have done work for? Well, I sit on sit and have sat on a number of boards, both in the throughout the nonprofit space, education, transportation, bicycle advocacy. I also wear my hat as a uh, Another day job at, at CARE doing strategic partnerships. So I, I do a good bit of, good bit of things. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, we're glad. Thank you very yeah. much for joining us. Uh, sitting next to you, Jackie Gingrich Cushman is with us. She is a conservative uh, writer. You can read her columns on um, – you can go to her. I always think the easiest way to see your columns is to go to JackieCushman.com where everything is, uh, is, is put up, and you can uh, link to it, right? Absolutely. We also, I'm on Town Hall as well, but yeah. I'm easy to find. Yeah. Um, and tell us about your and dad. And you may have heard it. Uh, I was playing <laughs> earlier. I apologize. But so my dad, Newt Gingrich, has a new podcast out. It's called Newt's World. And um, the fun thing about it, there's a little trailer that explains why he's doing this, and I'll, I'll give you the, the, the short version, but it's basically it's about whatever he wants. He goes around looking for, as he calls, cookies. And cookies are anything good and interesting and fun. And so all the podcasts will be about whatever cookie he's found and kind of his take on it. So it's not a political-only, politics-only podcast, but it's called um, Newt's World. And Steve Penley, who is uh, my favorite Atlanta local artist, who I love Steve. He's very talented. He has done um, a, a portrait of my father that they've used as the backdrop for the podcast. Uh, do you have an example of what, what his, some of the content uh, he, while, while we're talking about it? He did, it? yeah. So he did he did a trailer for the opening of Cookies, and then he did George Washington, and then I think the next one was uh, a historical scandal in con Congress. So he's just kicked it off, um, I think, last week. And so go check out, you know, it's on um, Westworld 1. Is that right? Yeah. And so, yeah. Um, so it's, anyway, you can find Newt's World. Newt's so for World. For those that already said he lived in his own world, now we have proof. <laughs> <laughs> and Andy, I can't imagine having covered Newt Gingrich for 30 plus years that there's anything that makes him happier than thinking the world is his. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've actually talked to uh, talked to Newt a couple of times on health care issues, so uh, he's, he's very uh, engaged in that. Andy Miller is the uh, editor of Georgia Health News, which is a uh, dedicated uh, website which will give you uh, about as in-depth an understanding of what's happening in the world of health care as anything. And it Andy, of course, we're going to ask you to comment on a lot of what we talk about today. But at some point, we want to talk about where we're headed with these waivers that we uh, that the governor has uh, been uh, talking about these days. But let's start, Greg, with your reporting on going up to Gwinnett County to see uh, Ivanka Trump and Governor Kemp. Where were they and what were they doing? They were at a UPS training facility in Gwinnett County early this morning. Um, she toured, Ivanka Trump and Governor Kemp and his wife Marty um, all toured the training facility, heard from CEO David Abney and some other company executives about their workforce training initiatives and their safety initiatives, and got a chance to speak a little bit privately. What I, I'm guessing that Governor Kemp uh, made his pitch to Ivanka to, to encourage her father, President Trump, to uh, uh, assign some emergency funding for Hurricane Michael relief at that little uh, at a meeting. Um, but really, it was focused on ways that Georgia and the states can learn from private businesses and what they're doing to encourage workforce development and safety. So do you have a, a pretty clear sense of how this thing happened? Did uh, the White House decide? Did the Kemp uh, uh, office decide they wanted Ivanka in town or at UPS invite? How did this all come together? I know it's been in the works for a, for a long time. Uh, and the CEO, David Abney, talked about how, just how long it takes. For, even though the event was maybe an hour long, but it took you know weeks of sure. preparation and, sure. and dozens of people working on it. Um, but look, you know, it's notable that the event was in Gwinnett County. It's a time where 
presidential candidates and, and politicians are making a beeline to Gwinnett County because it is a must win for Democrats now, having been a Republican stronghold for, for decades. Um, and so that wasn't lost on the audience. Um, and it's a day of, uh, you know, somewhat, you know, glowing media, positive media coverage about just, a, you know, a, a business-friendly message. Yeah, Jackie, I don't think it's any surprise that we had Elizabeth Warren up in Gwinnett <laughs> County last Saturday and now Ivanka Trump there this week. Greg says, you know, Gwinnett County has become a Democratic county. But in fact, the larger 7th District has the potential to be a real battleground uh, in the 2020 congressional race and in the presidential contest. Oh, absolutely. I think it's smart for a couple of reasons. It's smart for UPS to have basically a commercial of all the good things they're doing as a company. Um, for anyone that's watching the newspaper or, or, or listening to us. Um, and secondarily, it's very smart. I mean, Ivanka is very interested in anything that is workforce development, entrepreneurship, business, making jobs, ch- the, the child care, making sure there's child care for people that are actually working. So this is right in her wheelhouse. Um, she's an entrepreneur. She's run a business. She knows exactly what she's talking about. And I think it's really good for us to focus on how can we make things better for the people in Georgia versus fo- focusing on all the negative things that I'm sure we'll talk about later. Hmm. So I think, I think it's, I think it's great. Amir, uh, what is your, you're going to, we're going to see an open seat in the seventh district congressional race. We've already got Republicans and Democrats both eyeing it very carefully. It really is going to be one of the most exciting races that we'll get to watch in 2020. Yeah, I think, you know, to your point, Elizabeth Warren there last week, Ivanka there this week, we'll continue to see a stream of folks coming in. I'm one of these folks who thinks that elected officials tend to lag where people are by about 10 years. I think Gwinnett County's uh, <laughs> bluer than its elected uh, officials reflect. And so I think we'll see a lot of uh, rightful energy and passion put into that district. And it wouldn't surprise me to see a flip. So, Andy, um As we look toward a 2020 race, we're going to talk more specifically about Medicaid waivers in a little while. But, you know, we saw health care as a big, big issue uh, in races in 2018. It certainly became we all thought Lucy McBath over in the six would run on some kind of gun safety platform. She did that to an extent. But she may very well have won that uh, seat because she talked about health care ceaselessly. Well, the issue uh, during that campaign uh, across the country where people were uh, very concerned about uh, how you protect those with pre-existing conditions. They were concerned about the attempted repeal of the Affordable Care Act. And the Democrats won those issues, basically, that they, uh, you know, they gained seats and and. A lot of that was a theme of health care, protecting health care, protecting the Affordable Care Act, protecting people with pre-existing conditions. All right. Um, so that's that. Greg? Well, next door in the 7th District, the you know, the, the very competitive Republican-held district, we just had Nabila Islam get in the race today on a Medicare for All platform. Uh, and Carolyn Bordeaux was also in the race, and she also focused intensely on a Medicaid expansion and a health care message. So that issue, as you said, is not going anywhere. All right. Um, so let's move on and let you talk about the other event you covered today, which is why we call you the hardest working man in show business right now. Uh, you were at a Stacey Abrams, Abrams event, I think, after going to see Ivanka Trump. And that'll lead us into a broader conversation about what's happening with health care down at the Capitol. Yeah, she had her second event on voting rights in as many days. This was at a church in downtown Atlanta um, where she announced or her group, Verified Action, announced that it has expanded its lawsuit to include more plaintiffs and uh, including a number of prominent churches. Ebenezer Baptist Church, led by Raphael Warnock, is a new plaintiff, as are several other smaller churches and in a, a larger um, group of churches that represents 500 AME churches, historically black churches, um, is, is also joining the place. So they're getting a little pulpit power behind. They hope that this can, um, you know, ratchet up some more attention and give them a little bit of more, uh, you know, a boost to their, to their legal efforts. What's, what's the easiest way to describe what that lawsuit is about? It is a far-reaching yeah. lawsuit seeking yeah. to overturn Georgia voting, some Georgia voting practices like the cancellations of voter registrations, um, the uneven standards of counting provisional and absentee ballots, issues like that. It, it, but it goes... 
it is pages and pages and pages seeking some big changes to Georgia electoral policy. You know, Amir, I was interested because I know Ebenezer Baptist, uh, Raphael Warnock's uh, church is in your district. And I, I was interested in the fact that he was there with Stacey Abrams. Uh, starting really in 2016 and then in 2018, there were all sorts of questions about whether Warnock, a very charismatic, uh, smart pastor, was himself thinking about running for office. And there have been people who wondering if he was going to get into this uh, uh, U.S. Senate race against David Perdue. But um, it doesn't seem that's the direction he's headed right now. Yeah, I think that's right. Well, I think all Democrats are waiting to see what Stacey Abrams does. I think if she wants to run for Senate in 2020, they will uh, step aside and sure. put their ambitions uh, into another race. Um, you know, I think uh, Reverend Warnock is a constituent of mine. Uh, Ebenezer sits in the district, and I think incredibly highly of him. And he's been a terrific and strong, outspoken voice for um, social justice and, I think, election uh, parity. And so— um, I think his, his voice will be a, a useful one in this conversation. I'm, my recollection, and I may be wrong about this, but one of you can correct me if I am, was that there was talk that he wanted to make a race a while back, but his board at Ebenezer uh, pushed back and said, please, we need you here. Yeah, that, that was right? in 2016 16, yeah. thinking about challenging Senator Isaacson. Yeah, yeah. And, and what's also notable is that all these candidates that who he's thinking about challenging also end up sharing the pulpit with him on MLK Day. <laughs> Isaacson is a stalwart. He's always been on MLK Day at Ebenezer Baptist Church. And th this past year, Senator Perdue was with him at Ebenezer Baptist Church. Yeah, well, regardless of what his, what his politics are or your politics are, uh, and I know Amira will second me on this, uh, if you've never made a visit to Ebenezer Baptist on a Sunday morning to hear uh, Pastor Warnock preach, you are missing a great experience. He's really something. Yeah, he's he's um, he's one of a kind, and uh, will will stir your soul regardless of your uh, your denomination or religious affiliation. And it, look, it's it's a stop on. It must be in every. Atlanta tour book for international tourists. You'll see French yeah. and German and Japanese tourists in the congregation as well. And so it's, uh, if you live in Metro Atlanta, make time to go to Ebenezer for a service. All right. Um, so all of that said, Andy, we see that uh, Fair Fight Action is uh, continuing its push with a federal lawsuit to uh, shake up Georgia voting laws, which uh, the organization feels unfairly tilted the election away from Abrams uh, in 2018. And of course, a lot of action now going on down at the Georgia legislature. Yesterday, we had a Senate panel which approved no, I'm sorry. It was the the health care was in the House or the Senate? Senate? It was in the Senate. Senate. Okay, then I was right. Good. Yep. Tell us what happened in that Senate panel yesterday and what we are seeing start to emerge. Well, I believe this is one of the biggest health care sessions ever that, that I've covered, and I've been covering them for many years. Uh, so what has happened here with the, the vote yesterday was that uh, Governor Brian Kemp wants – the permission of the legislature to seek waivers uh, from the federal government to certain health care programs. He's looking at two different areas. One is Medicaid, a Medicaid waiver, and the other has to do with the Obamacare private insurance exchange. And uh, the Senate committee had, had uh, quite interesting testimony, and there were Democrats who pointed out and others pointed out the fact that a full-blown Medicaid expansion – which Kemp has opposed and Stacey Abrams obviously supported, uh, a full-blown Medicaid expansion would cover more people at less cost than the, than the waiver proposal for Medicaid that uh, Governor Kemp has proposed. Okay, but Andy, and then I want to get you into this, Jackie. Uh, you're talking now about the state share of the Medicaid expansion. The complaint that that Governor uh, Deal, now Governor Kemp, Speaker Ralston, and other leaders have always had is not so much about the state share. It's whether they would take on this responsibility with federal money uh, that would cover most of the costs, and then the feds can no longer pay for it. Right, Jackie? That, that's exactly I mean, the, the, the concern is, I think, really two things. One is the long-term implications if you start a program and it's, you know like anything else you do like if if i start a program and i'm going to go work out at a, at a facility every week and you know and, and greg's going to pay for it that's great um but if greg decides in three years not to pay for it and i can't deliver without it then all of a sudden i'm stuck with it so i think part of it is what's the long-term viability and who's actually going to pay for this my guess is greg's probably not going to pay for that yeah. uh, you're not going to do that so i think the other thing really is and it's i think we'll see this interesting because 
when I read it, and then Andy, correct me, I think there was a lot of wording about we're going to see how this goes and, and change things along the way and see how we can make it work. I think there is just, um, and it may not even be overt or obvious, but I think there's a lot of fear of turning everything over to the federal government because there's a belief that federal government can't make it work in a way in which it's actually workable because of the bureaucracy and because of everything else. And I can give you a, a different parallel example of why people might be nervous. If you look at gun sales and you look across the U.S. of sales of guns, you know, if you, if you have a three-day waiting period and you don't get flagged, you can buy a gun. If you get flagged after that period and you shouldn't have gotten the gun, then ATF can come back after the gun. Last year, there were 6,000 different flags that ATF had to go back after. So it makes you wonder, you know, how efficient is the government at doing things and is it really the way to do it? So I think there's also a philosophical belief on how does well, this work. Uh, Go ahead, Andy, and then well, I want to get Mary. First here. of all, I, I want to say that uh, Governor Kemp should be commended for the fact that we we haven't looked at increasing Medicaid yeah. rolls over the past eight years, and so he's doing that. Uh, and whether it goes far enough, we can debate. And how he does it, we you know we can debate that. The other question, the other point, though, I want to say is thirty six states have adopted Medicaid expansion, and we're talking about some pretty Republican governors like John Kasich and Jan Brewer and, Mike yes, Pence. Mike Pence. Yeah. So uh, they're all banking that the federal government will go ahead and keep their 90 percent pledge. And if they don't, then I'm sure those states will back off uh, what they're doing to me as well. jump in. Yeah. Like I, I'm, I'm constantly appalled by um, just how this conversation is being framed and this fear of the federal government at some point not living up to its end of the bargain, I think obscures the fact that we're talking about people's health and well-being, because fundamental ability to live a life um, and be a productive citizen in a state that has some of the worst health outcomes in the country, along with a lot of other states that are continuing to reject the Medicaid expansion. Um, and what's even more surprising to me is uh, the Republican leadership is is going against the will of Jordans. By most polls, 70 percent of Democrats favor expansion or 50 percent of Republicans favor expansion. People want this. Um, and uh, and, and we, we are leaving billions of dollars on the table, I think, by some estimations over 10 years, $45 billion in federal assistance. And so I think as Democrats have to continue to call for this and, frankly, win elections so they can kind of change the narrative at the Capitol. But at the same time, you have to realize we do have a Republican governor who's making some effort here, a Republican legislature that's in support of him. And so I think Democrats do owe it to themselves to be pragmatic and saying, all right, how do we get as many people covered in this framework as possible while still moving to win elections to, to get full expansion? Greg, I know you want to jump in. Let me f it, it first ask you a question and then go ahead with whatever else you want to say about this. Um, the committee voted to give Governor Kemp the power to, to do what he wants with Medicaid, correct? You got it. Okay, but a couple of sessions ago, uh, it, worrying that perhaps a Democrat, God forbid, could actually win the governor's office someday, the legislature took the power away from the governor, said the legislature has to be the body that approves an expansion of Medicaid. Does this vote change that if it's passed by the entire legislature, or does it just mean they're giving... Kemp the first crack at it, and then the legislature still has to approve. You, you kind of read my mind. This gives him the temporary power gotcha. to do this. And, and, and that's what strikes me is, is that this legislation gives the governor's office a tremendous amount of power that the legislative branch had kind of taken away four years ago, five years ago in 2014 when Governor Deal was in a, the middle of a, a tough re-election battle against Jason Carter. Um, and this does give Kemp wide, wide latitude to dictate a healthcare policy that could affect hundreds of thousands of Georgians and could lead to a, a limited but still still pretty major expansion of Medicaid. He's he's acknowledged that he says he doesn't want to be Lone Ranger. He's going to talk to lawmakers and advocates and all sides, and he's going to go on a sort of a publicity blitz, a, t a tour around the state. But still, this gives the executive branch a, a, a wide berth in healthcare policy. And I think Governor Kemp can really, should really be commended. He um, wrote an op-ed talking about the need for this. Um, and I think if you, if you haven't read it, you should go read it. It's in the AJC. Um, but it really talks about uh, – I give Greg his plug. It really talks about how many hospitals have closed, how we have a huge I – mean, for those of us that live in Atlanta, we have a lot of access to health care. So it really runs down the list about 79 counties with no OBGYN, 64 with no pediatrician, 9 with no doctor at all. I mean, so the good news is at least we can, we're all saying, look, we have a problem, 
let's see how we can fix it. So I think that was Andy's point earlier that, I mean, the good news is that we now recognize we have a problem. We're trying to do things. Maybe we're not agreeing on how to do it, but we're making progress, well, and that's good. Thank you for saying that, because it leads me to the question I wanted to ask you, Andy. Um, I, it's, you, nobody follows this stuff more closely than you do. Governor Kemp ran saying that he would not expand Medicaid. I mean, he was firm about that. He knew that that was going to appeal to his Republican base, and it did, apparently. So when I try myself to read the tea leaves on exactly what Kemp may be planning to do, they're scrambled. I don't quite get where he's headed, and I wonder if that's not intentional because he wants to give himself room, perhaps— to watch the political climate, see how things unfold before he goes too far. Am I misreading this? He hasn't told us specifically what he wants to do with these waivers. Yes, he's hired a consultant to come in and give him advice, but some of this seems to be a way to slowly get into the, a hot bath and cool it off as he gets in. Well, I think Republicans, as we talked before, Republicans are realizing <laughs> health care is an issue that resonates among voters. And, uh, and to tackle this, he's, he's going to hire this consulting firm. And, yeah, I think he's not jumping right in right away. But at the end of this process, he's going to come up with something that's going to be out there that he's going to have to, you know, live with and stuff. I want to mention, though, it's not just Medicaid that he's looking to change. It's a private insurance, insurance exchange waiver, too. Some of that could be good, like reinsurance, which helps stabilize premiums for individuals. But there are some concerns about what else it could have, like promoting limited benefit plans, junk insurance plans, and also creating high-risk pools, which have been pro- problematic in certain states. So uh, that's what he talked about on the campaign trail, Greg. Yeah. When he talked about his health care plan, it was all about mm-hmm. subsidizing those who uh, were under a certain, were in a certain economic mm-hmm. uh, income bracket so they could afford to buy on the exchanges. He didn't talk, he didn't say, I'm going to do something about Medicaid back yeah, The then. Medicaid <laughs> part was the new part. Um, yeah. And I think one of the key phrases um, in, in, in all this legislation and in all his rhetoric lately has been, by 2020. Because they want this, they just want the sign sealed and delivered by next year, just in time for the election. I bet they do. Because they know what an issue this is. All right, we got to get to a break. Um, when we come back, we want to talk about this uh, another major story uh, bubble up, up down at the Capitol, and that's uh, election possible election reform question mark. This is Political Rewind. We'll be right back. Financial contributions from listeners like you are not the only gifts that keep GPB on the air. In fact, many listeners have already chosen to donate a used vehicle to GPB. We'll pick up your vehicle for free and send you the paperwork for your taxes. Get started today. Call 877-GPB-1-CAR or go to gpb.org cars. That's 877-GPB-1-CAR or gpb.org cars. And thanks. Martin Luther King Jr. came to embody the ideal of peaceful, nonviolent protest. So how did he handle his anger? He came very dangerously close at that particular time to hating all white people. I'm Ari Shapiro, turning anger into positive action. This afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. It's 4 till 7 today on GPB, and you can listen online at gpbnews.org. Welcome back to uh, Political Rewind. Uh, of course, you can be watching this show if you go to Facebook Live. Just go to the GPB news page. I see that any number of you are already there. And I always, I've said this before, I love watching the conversations that you are having with each other as uh, we talk. And you can tweet us at politicsgpb. Hey, one quick uh, news item that's pretty interesting. The uh, Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. I love to say the formal name. <laughs> like it. So the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences announced today that John Lewis is going to be uh, involved in the award ceremony next Sunday night. And apparently he is going to be presenting, not an award, but pre- introducing one of the uh, nominations for Best Picture. So... You know, and Lewis is a guy who a couple years back, people may recall, criticized the Academy for not having a diverse enough approach 
to the business and to how they handled the awards that they gave out. Pretty interesting. I guess I'll have to watch now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you have to file a it, story. I, yeah. Yeah. Add to your list. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So, Greg, yesterday we, we had two big committees meeting yesterday, one the Senate committee looking at health care, and then the House, which I think today has been in mm-hmm. its second day of public hearings over a huge bill uh, that's ostensibly, first and foremost, going to decide we're going to fix what voting system Georgia will switch to for the 2020 elections. But there's also some little uh, nuggets in there with bipartisan uh, 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 support that will make some changes in election laws. Yeah, some pretty some pretty big ones. I mean, you mentioned the voting machines moving away from the 17-year-old system towards a new um, system that kind of spits out printed ballots rather than hand-marked ballots. That's, that's, that's a big controversy in itself. But also, um, it could curta- curtail large-scale removals of voters from the rolls, the purges that you've heard so much about. Uh, it could make it harder uh, to do the uh, exact match standards. Um, they want a second... A uh, person to oversee exact match, someone sitting next to the person in charge saying yes, no, whatever, right? Yeah, basically, uh, I guess an audit uh, yeah. almost yeah. of that. Um, and other changes um, that Democrats say doesn't go far enough and Republicans say answers a lot of the issues that, that, that clouded last year's vote. So, uh, Amir, this again strikes me. I mean, the voting machine part of it, I, I have said on the show a couple times, including yesterday, How this has turned into a partisan issue is really kind of beyond me. But for the most part, Republicans support what they call the ballot marking uh, apparatus, which is still a touchscreen that produces a paper uh, trail. And uh, for whatever reason, Democrats, for the most part, want, you know, pencil in bubble votes. I'm not quite sure where that came from, but uh, we are going to see a change. Yeah, I I think it's important to recognize because this has become an oddly partisan issue. that whether it's hand-marked paper ballots, whether it's uh, electronic touchscreen, there will always be some <laughs> effort at uh, at breaking the system and, and trying to, to stack the system. The history has shown whether it's a paper ballot or a electronic system, there will be forces that try and manipulate it, right? So uh, I, I think Georgians, for the most part, and I may uh, upset some of my Democratic peers on this, um, just want a system that works. And if that's a touchscreen system, uh, ensuring that the process is in place, um, both security-wise and otherwise, um, are such that you have strong confidence. I, I'm happy that we're talking, we're not debating whether there should be a receipt or not. We got a receipt. Uh, it looks like there'll be yeah. a receipt. Great. I was talking with the head of Maricopa County, Arizona, where Phoenix sits, their election system. And they have uh, a very rigorous kind of, uh, kind of transparent process on how the data gets taken from each individual device to a central station, someone oversees it. You can st- live stream the ballot counting process on their, on their website from six really? or seven cameras wow. in the room, um, Maricopa County, Arizona. You can go to their website now and look it up. They have a ballot uh, tabulation viewing uh, system. Wow. And, um, and confidence is pretty high. They also have mail. I wish we moved to a system where you could vote by mail as well, but that's not on the table. Um, but like, I think public trust in the process is paramount uh, for the strength of democracy. I'm hoping that um, whatever system we end up with has the requisite security mechanism so that people feel confident that their vote's going to be counted. Jackie, there have been, of course, questions uh, about how 2018 played out in terms of things like voter uh, purges, uh, absentee ballots that uh, were thrown out. Uh, Gwinnett County went through some real significant problems with uh, d- uh, disqualifying ballots that maybe shouldn't have been disqualified. So it's, it's I guess, and now Democrats don't think that this has gone far enough, and, and that may be the case. We'll watch that play out in the legislature, and we have the federal lawsuit that the Abrams group is pursuing. Nevertheless, it does seem as if Republicans get that they ought to get themselves behind some of these reforms uh, because it's only going to help them as the 2020 cycle gets going. Well, absolutely. I I think um, both sides of the aisle, again, I think you're right. This shouldn't be a partisan issue. And I totally agree with Amir. I mean, we need to have a system where everyone who's eligible to vote gets to vote, um, that they can get to a a location. I know a lot of that's controlled by the county, so it's not really a legislator standpoint, but it's really the county to make sure they can get to the the ballot and actually, you know, make sure that when they cast it, that it actually gets to the right place and then it's counted properly. 
And I think we need to have that so people feel confident when they go into the, the voting booth and vote for whatever candidate they want. Um, I do love, I haven't heard that, so thank you for that, that uh, the county, the live streaming, that would be, give, give Greg more to actually write about. That'd be great for you, right? <laughs> <laughs> but I think, you know, I, I think it's, we're being very thoughtful about it. And I do think it's confusing sometimes when people listen to this, to this process because there are some things that the state does and then there are some things that the counties do. And I think a lot of times when we talk in general terms, we kind of mix the two that together. That is so yeah. right. And Andy... The consensus on almost every panel that we've had on Political Rewind that has talked about this issue has been on one thing. The state should take control and establish firm rules that all counties in the state follow. It's this, it's this you know, hit or miss pattern around the state that causes confusion and trouble. Well, it makes sense for there to be some kind of centralized setup. But I, I agree with the other panelists. We need to get this right. Uh, for, you know, as Amir said, for democracy, we need to have our citizens very comfortable and and feeling like this is working and this is working the right way. One uh, of the biggest concerns, too, is the, the uh, those uneven standards of count, counting, especially absentee ballots. The legislation does take a step toward that direction. Mm-hmm. It says it prohibits absentee ballot rejections because of inconsistencies in voter signatures, which is what happened mostly in Gwinnett County. Um, there's, uh, we saw Randolph County become a big mm-hmm. uh, issue last year, Amir. Um, they wanted to c- close like nine precincts, I think, uh, and something seven like seven. Se- that's right, seven of their total of nine precincts. Uh, one of the things that this bill addresses is just that: uh, you would now have to give 30 days public notice uh, of a of a of decision to close a precinct, and it couldn't be done within 60 days of an election. So there is some added protection there as well. And here is an example of the state trying to impose some order on all of the counties that handle their own elections. Yeah, look, I mean, this is a basic basic step toward ensuring access to the polls. We have uh, a history of um, denying voter access, uh, much, many southern states do, and so I think we have to be vigilant. Kudos to the ACLU for tackling the Randolph County uh, issue last year. Um, look, I, I think there's a whole host of issues. I think we also should be discussing, frankly, whether a sitting secretary of state, this is not a partisan comment, though it may appear to be one, um, should be able to run uh, for a, a Georgia office while sitting. He or she should have probably have to resign. It's an optical um, kind of strike against us at the very least. Uh, and I, I think most Georgians are hungry for some sort of bipartisan or nonpartisan commission that could set some standards for the state that could be applied for every county uh, because we do have varying levels of infrastructure and expertise and um, kind of a volunteer training that, that execute our elections. And so I think we're at, a, we're at a day and age in which these discrepancies shouldn't be present. So I think there's an opportunity for some statewide uh, protocol. Yeah, uh, Jackie, I think Amir makes an interesting point. Um, whether you think there was widespread uh, suppression of the votes or not, uh, every story that talked about the perceived problems pointed back to one central fact. Brian Kemp, running for governor, was also the secretary of state overseeing the election. I can't help but wonder if if he'd had a chance to look back on it. He might have wanted to do what Kathy Cox did right. when she was running, which was not to step down necessarily as Secretary of State, but at least recuse himself from mm-hmm. overseeing the election uh, uh, b- board and apparatus. But I don't think there's any, to the best of my knowledge, there's no legislation pending down there, is there? Well, there, there's a few Democratic proposals either in yeah. the works, but, but, but they're not going to go They're not going to go anywhere. Yeah. So. And, and I do think, I mean, you, you can never look backward and, you know, think what you should have done because you've already done it. It's hard right. to do that. Um, and I do think part of the, the challenge when people make these widespread accusations about the last election is that a lot of the issues were actually local issues and the yeah. county issues that he didn't have any control over. And so it, it kind of makes you, 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 you it just it's, I think it's very confusing. But I do think if we want to do that, then we need to do, you know, you can't just assume someone will do it because they think it's the right thing. If you want to make sure that that doesn't happen again, it's going to have to be through legislation to say this is what should happen. And we're still waiting for a winner in that North Carolina congressional district. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not? Ninth, well, I think we're now waiting. At this point, we're waiting to see when they set the date for a new election. Yeah. The hearings that are underway up there have proven pretty unequivocally so far, Greg, that there was fraud involved in the harvesting of absentee ballots. Yeah. And don't forget, we have still a state legislative contest that might have yeah. a new vote, too, up in northeast Georgia. It's already gone through two redo votes in 
could have another one. You know what's interesting to me about all of this, Amir, whether it's what's happening up in that district in North Carolina where the Republican won by 906 votes, but maybe not really because someone working on behalf of his team was literally collecting absentee ballots illegally, tamp- maybe manipulating, tampering them with them, um, whether it's the legislative district that Greg is talking about. I don't think we've ever been as aware as we are now of how fragile and sort of um, vulnerable the entire voting process really can be. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I think there is a um, there broad distrust for institutions across culture, whether it's business, nonprofits, educational institutions, the business sector, but especially for government, right? And, and we're seeing that, I think, uh, uh, sensitivity to any sort of slight um, kind of build on the, on the previous one, build on the previous ones, we're almost at a breaking point, right? Where folks are like, I, I just don't trust anything. Uh, and so you're seeing that in our election process. Um, I think government needs to be doing everything possible to make it not only safe and secure for people to vote, but make it easy for people to vote. Yeah. Jackie, um, those of us who are old enough, and you're barely there. <laughs> Thank you. Sort of the image you have in your, I have in my <laughs> mind is of the 2000 recount in Florida. Mm-hmm. Every single ballot, a team of Republicans, Democratic lawyers right. looking at each individual ballot. And there's a way in which what we've gone through in this last year reminds us of just that notion. Every single ballot counts or it doesn't, and it better count. <laughs> oh, I think it's very true. And if, and if you remember, and I'm sure you do, um, that was the first election where the major networks had consistent colors for the two, for yeah. the Democrats yeah. and for Republicans. Yeah. Yeah. And if you think about what that visual did for, for all of everyone that stared at it every day, all day, and looking at the, you know, the red and the blue, how that really has changed how we think about not only elections, but also the parties. How and partisan we are? How partisan oh we are. Oh, my God. Greg Ayers thought that was her dad's fault. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's you the news media. You can't, you can't blame him for everything. <laughs> All right. We got to take another break. Uh, we'll come back in a minute with more on Political Rewind. On the next Fresh Air, how Russian-style kleptocracy has infiltrated the U.S. We talk with Franklin Four, national correspondent for The Atlantic. We'll also discuss the latest news about the Mueller investigation and Paul Manafort. Four's article about Manafort is nominated for a National Magazine Award. Join us. Fresh Air is this afternoon at 3 here on GPB and gpbnews.org. Touchdown, John Nelson here from GPB Sports, reminding you that in Georgia, the four seasons are not winter, spring, summer, and fall. It is football, spring football, Cruton, and National Signing Day. On the Football Fridays in Georgia podcast, we'll tell you the stories on and off the field. Subscribe at gpb.org forward slash sports and wherever your favorite podcasts are found. Greg Bluestein, I want to do a qu- just a quick uh, update on, on an interesting story that we'll talk about maybe in more detail. Um, Georgia hasn't set a primary date for the presidential election. All the other states are lined up. They know when California is part of that early Super Tuesday primary. If Georgia doesn't get a date set, which is now up to Raffensperger, mm-hmm. the secretary of state, it could take away some of the power that we might have in the Democratic presidential Yeah, look, primary. candidates are already beating a path to yeah. Georgia. Uh, yeah. Elizabeth Warren came last week. Senator Klobuchar of Minnesota is coming on Friday. We're not sure if she's having a public event or just a fundraiser yet, but she's coming. And many, many more candidates are on the way. So we're assuming we're going to be uh, – Georgia is going to be part of the, you know, a, 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 a Super Tuesday-type SEC primary, whatever you might call it. But we're not sure yet. And, and uh, Raffensperger's office is mum. They're not even answering any the, questions. The uh, legislatures are in control over the election day to the Secretary of State uh, a couple of years back. Yeah, right? before the 2012 um, election. Yeah. And you saw Brian Kemp, when he was Secretary of State, leverage it to make the SEC primary. And, and you know, we, we Georgia attracted a lot of presidential candidates before the primary, not many after it. Uh, but this year it could change with Georgia being a, a likely battleground state. Yeah. Yeah, I, I can tell you, having actually um, been on the cam- uh, the presidential campaign trail with my father, it really does matter how, where your state lands. Yeah. Um, I think clearly Georgia's going to be an important state, but the, I think we need to be early as opposed to way late. Um, because then you get, more, you get more candidates, obviously. You get more interest. You get more 
news media. Greg, you have more stories more to competition. write. You get to write more stories. Um, so I think I think it is important, and hopefully we'll be in the early side, mentioning to see what happens. In, uh, in uh, very quickly, in late 1991, then Governor Zell Miller uh, was in Los Angeles for an, an off-year Democratic National Committee meeting. I was out there covering it with a reporter from the AJC, Tom Baxter, who was doing politics mm-hmm. back then. And Zell called us into a little uh, off-the-record session and said, hey, I'm thinking about moving the Georgia presidential primary in 92 to an earlier date, I think March 3rd, although I don't remember exactly. How do you think that would be received by all of you in the media? And we said, we don't care. And, of course, what he was really trying to do was position Bill Cl- Georgia so that if Clinton came out of New Hampshire not as strong as he'd hoped to be, he could come right to Georgia and Zell could deliver Georgia for Clinton. That's exactly what happened, and it was what helped propel Clinton to the Democratic nomination. So these dates, you're right, uh, the, they matter. Absolutely. The, the momentum <laughs> you have, if you can go from one state to the next and not be broken from momentum, it's a huge game changer because, again, that's all the national media is covering is – where you are in the lineup and what happened. Um, while we're talking about it, Amir, you're proposing something in the Atlanta City Council related yeah, this, to the this, election. This goes back to a little bit what we are talking about before, is how do you, how do you make it easier for uh, people to vote? And so I've, uh, along with a couple of my colleagues, Jennifer Ryan, Matt Westmoreland, I introduced legislation this week to um, designate Election Day, the November Election Day, as a uh, formal city holiday so that city workers, and which uh, count in the thousands, um, can vote in their respective uh, jurisdictions. Um, and I think this is not an original idea. I stole this idea from Sandusky, Ohio, which uh, did this a few weeks ago. And I think you'll see a lot of other cities following suit because we want to set the example that election day is important and you should go vote. All right. Well, keep us up to, to date on how that uh, uh, ordinance progresses. Uh, Greg, there's a measure going down that's being uh, d- going to be debated at the Capitol that may it may seem like a subtle shift, but it's not. Right now, um, Georgia has a pool of money set aside, $100 million, that people, businesses, others can contribute to that fund, get a tax break for it, and that money can be distributed to schools for help partial tuition Mm -hmm. for students who can't afford it. Now, uh, we've got House Bill 301 which proposes, and I think you've got the, the, one of the governor's leaders in the legislature uh, behind this bill, direct money to families to help pay for private education. It sounds small, but it's a big shift, and public educators are, are really opposed to it. Yeah, I mean, they're opposed to anything that could be cutting into the financing and, and the, you know, cutting into the pie that, uh, of public money um, that, that, that the K-12 system already gets. But it's also uh, another sign of, of if Governor Kemp is indeed behind this, and we haven't heard from him, but the fact that his floor leader is behind it is a pretty big signal um, of his promises to, to, find, to, to, to funnel more funding to charter schools and to, and to um, other school options. Um, you know, not necessarily voucher programs, but but give give parents and needy needy families different options to, if they don't want if they're not happy or satisfied with the K through 12 system. You know, uh, Andy, what's uh, interesting to reflect upon here is this is exactly the issue that got Casey Cagle in so much trouble during the primary. Uh, he had vanquished Clay Tippins and uh, Tippins, who had run against him for governor. It was now down to the runoff between Kemp and Cagle, and uh, Tippins came in and recorded that infamous. Con- conversation in which Cagle said, I don't want to raise the caps on these scholarships. It's a bad bill, but I got to do it. And it probably cost him. It, it certainly contributed to the reason he lost the, his uh, race. Yeah. And and he was ahead, right? He was the uh, the front runner for quite a while yeah. in that race, yeah. uh, the primary race. Yeah. So we'll watch how this unfolds. Jackie, what you're, you're thinking about this, you know, conservatives tend to like the idea of subsidies for private school admission. Well, we tend to like, and it's back to what, what Greg said, we tend to like anything that provides basically it's competition for dollars and, and also uh, it provides competition from the from the public school side and also provides parents with, with some choice and some ability to have some control over where their children go to school. And I mean, I, you know, I have um, I have two children, one's now in college, one's in high school. And you know, one of the most important things you do as a parent, besides providing them with a home where they're, you know, hopefully loved and encouraged, is to make sure that they get a good education. And I think we need to think of all different ways we can do that in Georgia, because we have a long way to go. But Amir, you look at the Atlanta public schools and uh, they're always concerned about how much money they have to do what they want to do to educate their students, to pay their teachers. And, and so this is the sort of thing that, 
the public schools in your district really hate to contemplate. Yeah, though I, I will note APS has some of the highest uh, kind of cost per pupil expenses in the, in, yeah. in the state, in fact, I think the highest. And to be clear for listeners, the city does not run the schools, right. and the public schools are separate, <laughs> right. so I have uh, little to no say he about that. He washed his hands <laughs> on that one. <laughs> that was actually smart. That was smart to say. <laughs> uh, but again, that's not, some big cities run their school systems. That's not the case in Atlanta. Um, but look, I, I think this is, this is one of the systemic issues that will challenge um, Atlanta's competitiveness over the long haul, which is how strong are, is our public school system. Um, I, I once um, brought a demographer down uh, to give a talk at a conference I was helping organize, and he said quite pointedly, Metro Atlanta, and by that nature Georgia, has grown so significantly over the last 30 years on the backs of people who were educated elsewhere. And if, if your public education system is not producing um, individuals who can fill the jobs that currently exist and the jobs of the future, um, you're going to be at a huge disadvantage economically over the next few decades. I, I think, go ahead, Jackie. I was going to say, one of the things we're really looking at, and actually we're working on APS with this, is I'm on the board of um, the Georgia Early Education Alliance for Ready Students. I don't always think of that. We really look at birth through five. So the, the challenge we really have as a state is we, is we need to make sure our children are ready for school when they arrive, because if they're if they're not ready, then they can never catch up. And so, really, I think, and I, we, we've and I've been down to the Capitol. Um, you know, we've, we've talked to both sides of the aisle, really focusing on how can we educate um, not just parents but also caregivers, because it's not just about you know making sure the children are safe. That's good, but they're also learning a lot in those very first years. So I do think we have a long way to go in Georgia, um, but I think we need to focus on making sure when they do go to school that they're ready, because if all the kids are ready, it's a lot easier to educate them. Those and early it, years are absolutely crucial to brain development. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of research that, that, that shows that the more trauma kids get at those ages, that, that, that they will lag in terms of their brain development. And so those are absolutely key years. All right. One other quick item. Uh, this is just quick. Faith and Freedom Coalition, uh, uh, Greg, just had their annual uh, legislative luncheon. They had about 500 people mm -hmm. there, uh, we're told. Uh, the governor, lieutenant governor, Chris Carr, Speaker Ralston, they were all there. Uh, and uh, uh, Tom Faust points out that one of the things that was interesting is that they talked about, the speakers talked about opposing um, abortion rights. Kemp has already said several times he wants the toughest abortion laws in the country. They talked about expansion of medical marijuana rules. They didn't talk about religious liberty, casinos, and gambling at, at all. all. Yeah, I was there yesterday. For oh, the, you were. For the full of course event. you were. <laughs> and didn't hear one mention of gambling. And, and ironically, it was also the day that Brandon Beach, who's running for the 6th District um, uh, congressional seat, who's now a state senator, dropped his bill to expand uh, to allow casinos in Georgia. So not a, not a mention of that. Um, you know, maybe their focus is elsewhere on, on pro-life initiatives, that kind of thing. But uh, it struck me as odd. But also, Jackie, nobody talked about religious liberty. You know, that's one of those hot-button issues that we may see completely disappear from this session I, I, because the governor really doesn't need to take that on. Yeah, my, my guess is, I mean, when it came up last time, Ralston squashed it pretty quickly right. um, and pretty, you know, pretty clearly and publicly. Um, so I think there, there's, a, there's a known, there's no appetite for that. I've, I've talked to many people down there. There is no appetite for that. So hopefully they will focus on things they can do and can accomplish versus trying to, you know, raise something up that they can. Absolutely. You know, and who down. knows, maybe Amazon will come back here after <laughs> all. <laughs> Don't count on that one. <laughs> no, I'm not. All right. Look, we're out of time uh, for today's show. Uh, it was really a great conversation. Andy Miller, uh, we're going to have you come back, talk about certificate of need, which is the biggest issue in many ways about medical care down at the uh, state capitol. Jackie Cushman, thank you for coming in. Amir Faroki, great to have you on the show. Please come back. I'd love to. It's been a pleasure. And Greg Bluestein, I don't know how you fit us in. You're <laughs> out there. you got too many things to do. But thank goodness, Wednesdays, we get a t an hour of your time. Thank you for being Glad here. Glad to be here. Uh, we'll be back again on uh, Friday at 2 o'clock, and we'll be on TV Friday night at 7 with the TV version of Political Rewind. So join us for uh, both of those shows if you can. I'm Bill Nygut. See you in a couple days.